0: Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me. And it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You're really going to dig it. Go check it out and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Yes, hello, it's Jason Louv. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture podcast. Today I have one of our all-time classic and most beloved interviews ever remastered with hyper technology for 2023. I'm speaking with Dr. Ralph Abraham, one of the inventors of chaos mathematics and a legendary figure within the psychedelic counterculture This interview was recorded in 2018, but it is more relevant than ever because of the rise of artificial intelligence, large language learning models, chat GPT, etc, etc, machine learning. And as we enter an era in which without a doubt, people will be turning over their intellectual work to AI, and the overarching quest of civilization will be to reach the ultimate AI model, which factors in the most data and provides the most accurate responses. In the face of such a grim future of total control, messages like Ralph Abraham's are more needed than ever. And that is that chaos truly is the baseline of reality and cannot be controlled. So here's a short bio of Dr. Abraham, before we get started. Ralph Herman Abraham, born on July 4th, 1936, is a distinguished American mathematician with a decorated tenure in academia. Graduating with his BSc, MS, and PhD from the University of Michigan, Abraham held notable positions at institutions including UC Berkeley, Columbia University, and Princeton before settling into his long-standing role at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where he's now a professor emeritus. A pioneer in dynamic systems theory since the 1960s, he's also ventured into consulting roles, leveraging chaos theory across varied domains from ecology to psychotherapy. In 1975, he established the Visual Math Institute in Santa Cruz, originally named the Visual Mathematics Project. Beyond academia, Abraham has a flair for integrating mathematics with the arts, having organized performances fusing mathematics, visuals, and music. Notably, his experiences in the 1960s Santa Cruz hip scene and his exploration with the psychedelic drug DMT have profoundly influenced his perspective on the connections between math and deeper existential experiences. Okay, without further ado, please welcome Dr. Ralph Abraham.
1: I've been reading your book. I've just finished part one only. Ah. But I'm very impressed with the the breadth, the spectrum of integration. Oh, thank you you so much. You know, a lot of things that I have never known about John Dee, most Uh, especially your your main line about the evangelical angle, the founding of the Americas, uh, uh, the idea of the British Empire and so on. I have known little about all this. Oh,
0: thank you so much. It was amazing to me as I as I dug into D and started looking at the all of the research that all of the writing about D was kind of in two camps. One was or actually maybe three camps. There was the writing about the scientific and mathematic accomplishments. There was the writing about the geopolitical and imperial accomplishments. And then there was the writing, of course, about the occult stuff. And it yeah. often hadn't been put all together, so it's amazing when it, comes, when it all comes into focus.
1: Well, yes, I think that's a great service you've done. The, the entire detradition is to integrate it so well. And I look forward to reading the rest. I was thinking
0: maybe a, maybe a good way to start would be just if you could introduce yourself to the audience and talk a little bit about your career and the things that you have been so interested in over the last several, several decades now and the incredible work that you've done.
1: Yes. Well, I'm, you know, professor of mathematics at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And I began, my first job was at uh, Berkeley and then uh, Columbia and Princeton. The first eight years or ten years or so of my career was all in the direction of pure mathematics, uh, geometry, topology, differential topology of dynamical systems, also known as chaos theory and so on. After 1968, this took a drastic turn because we discovered chaotic behavior had been observed in computational work in Japan. And the results of these experiments were totally orthogonal to the pure mathematical work that we have doing and the entire subject our community of people interested in pure mathematics or dynamical systems w- was shocked and and essentially destroyed a new tradition began based on computation this coincided with my accepting a position in in California and coming to Santa Cruz from Princeton in 1968. At that time, this is an important uh, influence on my own mathematical career. At that time, the hip culture was flourishing throughout California and uh, particularly in Santa Cruz, which was a kind of a crux or epicenter of the international hip community. So that affected my work. At the same time, I was open to completely new ideas because of the unwanted transition and catastrophe of my pure mathematical subject and the emergence of, of computation as the essential method for making further progress in the field. Because Santa Cruz was adjacent to Silicon Valley, we had early, very adequate computational facilities, especially computer graphic equipment in Santa Cruz. So this transition with the emergence of the visual uh, feedback on abstract mathematical systems provided by the computer graphic revolution coincided with the visual experience of psychedelics that were so central to the emerging and evolving uh, hip community
0: was was that really the point at which those things came together for you? You talked about the the counterculture influencing you, and then and then the influence of chaos theory. And that's absolutely fascinating. Maybe you can talk more about what that period was like, what was going through your head. Did psychedelics play a central role in that?
1: Oh, absolutely. And not only. For me, but for many other mathematicians I knew in this particular subculture, where computational work, or let's say applied work, was taking over. Since the pure mathematical program had failed, we were shopping for new ideas. We were looking under rocks everywhere for a new idea, how to proceed toward an effective frontier in this really crucial area of mathematics so the different members of the community migrated into different applied areas looking for d- new concepts to pursue theoretically and some of these individuals experience psychedelics directly and others more indirectly we were all since the center of this activity was uh, berkeley california Everyone was affected by hip culture, whether you had friends who were hippies or not. It was uh, everywhere. The the music, the uh, puppet performances, the hippie clothing, the uh, social communities, and so on. So the... Tendency, the emergence of the visual method in mathematics, empowered by computer graphics, it affected everyone who was working on this particular frontier and also related areas of differential geometry, which required visualization of static or moving objects in three or more dimensions, objects that were not like a solid object, like a cube or a sphere, but something much more complicated, which had interior structure, essentially fractal, very difficult to understand. So, mathematicians working in this area were all from earliest times, like Einstein and so on, they were all visual thinkers. So, the visual aspect of psychedelic experience improved the visual capability of these people that was essential to understand what was happening with chaotic and fractal images that were so new so completely novel i think that the chaos revolution could not have happened without the psychedelic revolution and the coincidence of these two major cultural transformations at the same time can't can't be unrelated wow so, so yeah well, it's, it's it's so now
0: you're you're talking about this in, in in retrospect and it seems so obvious that this would have happened in, in hindsight. But I'm curious: at the time, was there pushback? Was this like an underground? Were people being quiet about it? Was there resistance from particularly, you know, the, the mathematics departments or, or mainstream you know mainstream academia? What was was it like an outlaw culture or was it just completely straightforward?
1: Well, it, it started out straightforward, but there was a serious complication in that the significance of chaos theory, the basic idea of it, was antithetical to the entire tradition and history of the sciences, insofar as science depended on mathematical models which is not everything. I mean, there's ob- observations, classifications, experiments, and so on. But when it comes to making theory, making mathematical models in physical science, in biological science, in social science, the models that have been the most successful in these applications were all demoted because of chaos theory, which implied that the predictions could not be trusted. The models were good for improving intuition about physical, biological, or social systems, making a kind of gymnasium for people to practice and improve their ability to understand what they're looking at. The the models were useful for cognitive purposes as cognitive strategies, tremendously helpful. But in terms of prediction, no, chaos theory applies that the models, as far as they are complex dynamical systems, they are unpredictive. They can't be predictive because the slightest change of the data input to the model could make very, very drastic changes to the output of the model. Maybe you can give us
0: just the the elevator pitch on, on chaos theory, if you will, for people who are listening who may never have heard of it.
1: Well, chaos theory is about uh, dynamical systems, which are they're made in the context of what you might call multivariable calculus. So, uh, essentially, the, uh, the data which a theoretician might construct as a model for, let us say, the projectile in a gravitational field, the orbit of Mars or whatever, the, the 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 basic structure of this model is a vector field, and that means a geometrical space at each point of which is attached a vector, something that has a direction and a magnitude, like velocity has a direction of motion and the speed of motion. So we see this all the time in the weather report, where we see that the the wind velocity at each point of a map of California, for example, is shown by a little arrow. That's the, the basic structure. We have the vector field. And what is constructed from the vector field that gives the output of the model is the so-called trajectory. That means that you start at one point and you move in the indicated direction of the arrow attached to that point. You move in the direction and the speed indicated by that arrow. In a jiffy, you're at a new point where there's a new velocity vector a new wind direction and strength, for example, and uh, then you have to turn and you move in the new direction. And in another jiffy, you have another instruction. So you keep turning and moving so that you're always following the directions given by this vector field. And eventually, this makes a smooth curve that goes round and round, and the outcome, the output, the conclusion of the model is where this trajectory ends up. So in the community model for climate change, for example, then this direction might be toward increasing global temperature or decreasing global temperature, the melting of glaciers or the growth of glaciers. And the prediction of the model depends on the vector field, which controls the evolution of these trajectories. What was the catastrophic discovery in November of 1961 is that this trajectory needn't settle down on an equilibrium point, like slow down and stop in a, in a favorite uh, location. It could move around and around in a cycle and in a loop and in something like a tangled spool of yarn in a plate of spaghetti. That's called a chaotic attractor. The discovery of chaotic attractors meant... That this kind of model, ubiquitous in the history of sciences, physical, biological, and social, the predictions could not be trusted. And this was actually realized by the founder of chaos theory, Henri Poincare, you know, around the year 1880. So I have over a century of understanding, of, of knowing something which was not widely known until it became visible thanks to computer graphic revolution, analog computers developed during World War II. That's chaos theory. It's bad news in the sciences because the models that you trust cannot be trusted. So, because of this very unwelcome implication of chaos theory, it became unpopular. It was rejected by orthodox science and people gave lip service but did not really believe did not want this conclusion it was undesirable because it it nullified so much historical science it required all of these theories in which predictions were made based on mathematical models required all of them to be revised not abandoned they weren't destroyed but they needed updating with an appreciation of the new mathematics of chaos. So it was for this reason, not because we were involved with psychedelics, not because we were hippies, not because we'd grown our hair long and so on. It was because of this very unwelcome implication of chaos theory that it, chaos theory, and all the Chaos people, the community of people studying, which numbered just in the hundreds worldwide, all of this was unpopular, was essentially rejected, so that that although there was a brief wave of popularity of chaos theory around 1985 to 1990 or so, after that the subject was essentially brushed under the rug And to this day, there are very few math departments in the world where chaos theory is taught, although it's extensively used in engineering, architecture, economics, and so on. What do you think the reason for
0: that was? Why was it so threatening? Why was it swept under the rug? And where does that stand now? It's just, is it just completely ignored, or has it been
1: incorporated in some way? No, it's been practically forgotten. During this wave of popularity, I I wrote a textbook, a pictorial textbook of chaos theory called Dynamics of the Geometry of Behavior. It was published in the 1980s, and it was widely read, and I received mail from really hundreds of scientists and engineers who had studied and learned the subject and were so enthusiastic that in this wave of popularity, so many people, ordinary people, could well understand the implication and the excitement of chaos theory. There's a popular book which tells this story which is called Chaos, The Making of a New Science or something like that by James Glick. So that book woke up a lot of people to, even psychoanalysts and artists, woke them up to the possibility of really new images, new thinking, new models, new theories in their various fields. So for that to be forgotten required a certain decision be made by world-leading scientists. And that was either to learn this new mathematics and incorporate it and revise the subject, which history demanded, or to reject it and try to stick to the old models and keep on pretending that predictions could be trusted. And this is a whole industry of prediction, basically, for scientists getting large grants to make predictions and, and so on. They, they don't want uh. it to be understood that the predictions For example, even yesterday on the radio, I heard the, the IPCC had declared that the newly discovered melting of glaciers in Antarctica would raise the level of the Atlantic Ocean by four inches in a course of 100 years, something like that. The observation of the melting of the glaciers is science. The prediction of how much it will result in 100 years, that's a fiction, mathematical fiction, that's trusting the model which is unproved to make reliable predictions, you see. So the industry of prediction didn't want the mathematics underlying their predictions to be softened by new discoveries.
0: So, essentially, if the if it becomes widely understood that the prediction is not really possible and the predictive models collapse, then nobody can get
1: paid to predict things anymore. Right. They couldn't get paid to make... Precise numerical predictions for a long time in the future, long-term prediction, short-term predictions still okay. We can trust the weather forecast on the TV news for the next three, four, or five days, but not for three, four, or five weeks. It's just the models aren't that good. We know. Do you think that's because still true? T- even sorry. Do you think that's Absolutely. still true?
0: Even with with the, you know increasing computing power and machine
1: learning? Absolutely. Still true? No. The chaos theory says you can't you can't compute from a chaotic model because the trajectory that you're trying to predict is getting caught in a so-called homoclinic tangle, a chaotic attractor, this pile of spaghetti and it rapidly moves around following the spaghetti over the size of the plate. So you can only predict within the size of the plate. And that's a ballpark prediction. So we know from our experience with the weather forecast that it's never reliable in terms of what's the minimum and maximum temperature gonna be a week or two weeks from today it is there is a prediction and it's not what happens
0: see i find that very reassuring I, i can see why people would be terrified by that but i find it reassuring because it means that we can't know the future things can't be locked down things can't be and, and whatever predictive model seems to be accurate at the time can change in the blink of an eye. I mean, I guess a very shocking and, and prescient example just recently was all of the predictions for the election that Nate Silver was making yes. that were just thrown out overnight, I guess. would that, Would that be a good example of what you're talking
1: about? Absolutely. So the unpredictable is still happening, and that's good because we have willpower, we have freedom of choice, Uh, we have options in the future. And to get an intuition, this mathematical models are all about intuition. You can grok a certain situation. We know the temperature, the barometric pressure, the wind velocity, and so on, will go smoothly up and down, and every once in a while there'll be a bump. We have an intuitive feeling from our life history of what to expect and to demote our intuition and replace it with somebody's prediction from an untrustworthy mathematical model. I think that this is a kind of science as religion. This is a kind of faith, faith in the, in, in the doctor. So, science mystifies. Science and governments use mathematics to mystify and to fool people out of their intuitive understanding and get them to rely on some orders from the central government.
0: This is a, this is a phenomenal thing to hear a mathematics professor say about talking about raising up the value of intuition, even in a mathematical sense. And this seems like a, a good place to seg into. The fact that, of course, one place that chaos theory has been had a huge impact is in spirituality in general and the idea of chaos magic in specific. And I'm curious if this is something you've also been interested in. And and I know you've been interested in in John Dee, obviously. So I'm curious how
1: that that interest began. Uh, Yes. Well, it's all connected up, you see. At the time that this popular book on chaos theory w- was published, s- somehow the book and the time were a good match because the book was phenomenally successful. Uh, sold hundreds of thousands of copies. I mean, a m- book about a mathematical development translated into 25 languages. I mean, it's it's, it's really amazing. Anyway, it was popular, and I was mentioned prominently in this book, so I began receiving telephone calls from journalists and authors and planners asking, what is it all about? What is the significant chaos theory? And then I was trying to say more or less what I've just said. Something came along suddenly and made a big difference to the whole history of science, and the questions were more and more penetrating and difficult as to not only what was the chaos revolution, but how did it come about? So I started researching this enough to answer the questions of hundreds of callers and eventually had the material for a book which I published in 1994, I think, called Chaos Gaia Eros, about the chaos revolution, the Gaia revolution, uh, Eros revolution, I called it, which is the application, the three things, application to the physical sciences, the biological sciences, and the social sciences. My colleagues heard that I was writing this book, working on a book around 1988, and asked me to teach a course in the history of mathematics. So I taught a course, that was to be repeated every year. And UC Santa Cruz, and probably like many schools, after teaching a course, you get anonymous feedback from the students, written down or now by email and so on, with complaints and suggestions and praise for the course. So this first time in 1988 or 89, I taught the entire history of mathematics. I covered all from, from Pythagoras to the present and the feedback i got from students was this is much too broad why not just focus on a few people so i thought okay i'll try the extreme opposite i'll give a course on one mathematician because from it's like a hologram from one you understand everything and i chose john d so the followed following year i gave this history of mathematics course at uc santa cruz on john d's mathematics and I was amazed that people came from all over the Bay Area, dressed in black, <laughs> people who were practitioners of Anarchian magic and knew a lot more about John D. than I did. And eventually, we had seances in the classroom, and <laughs> which Medimi appeared and and so on. So that's how I started. I, I, I have to put
0: a pause in that for a second. When you say Medimi appeared, what do you mean by that? That's of course one of the spirits that Dee and Kelly communicated with a young girl what was what what, what yeah, specifically
1: yes. happened there well what the, this group of people what they were doing was having seances in which they would conjure angels and they were different uh, they had the astrology down to the exact moment to do the certain Anarchian call and they, they knew all this which is way beyond john d things uh you know or and magic had evolved uh, for these hundreds of years since John Dee. And of course this is considered nonsense by scientists and practically everyone denial of magic is one of those things like denial of anything that the doctor says is nonsense or science says is non-existent, like telepathy or what is all what is called paranormal and which is actually normal. Anyway, they went through the conjuration and for them, something actually happens. So I thought, well, let's try it out in the classroom. We had about 100 students and we'll see how many people have a successful experience. So they conjured in this particular procedure. They uh, they brought up uh, Madimi, who I thought was particularly interesting because she was this a small female angel that would run up and down the bookshelves in the library where they were doing the procedure. John D. and 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 Kelly. So, for me personally, in this conjuration in the classroom, which was all darkened, and they had guards, and they locked the doors, and it was quite frightening, the procedure lasted longer than the normal class time. So people from the next class who wanted to enter the classroom were blocked out. And in this experience, I personally, I saw something. I had an experience in which I I believe that I understood what it means to conjure an angel. So when you say you saw something, do you mean in the room or in your behind closed eyes? Well, it seems in the room, but the room was dark and there was like a play of light as it were. And of course, by this time I had done hundreds of, of acid trips and, and quite a large number of DNT trips. and so I was accustomed so I would say to a certain kind of visualization of the inner space. And the distinction between inner space, I mean behind closed eyeball eye, eyelids, and outer space like in the classroom, that is a fictitious distinction because it's like all connected up in a series of layers, as it were, in which each layer illuminates by a process of emanation. The next layer down, which is denser and more, you see uh, the practice of psychedelic visualization means that a skill is practiced at seeing part of this spectrum of different levels of consciousness. So I was, as it were, prepared by psychedelics prepared by meditation and so on to be a receptive subject, as it were, for suggestive procedure. I cannot uh, distinguish the different levels of reality. I cannot say this was imaginary. And all of this is only interesting if information is produced. And, of course, John Dee was doing these angel sessions because he wanted to know the future of mathematics. He wanted to know the future of science. He wanted to know the future of world cultural history. He wanted to enlarge his understanding by essentially asking questions of God, of the creator. What's the intention? What's going on? What should we be doing? And that kind of information is actually... Forthcoming through these procedures, whether it's psychedelic, or meditation, or magical calls, and and so on. Tapas that means uh, austerities like starvation, illness, and so on. We people have spiritual experiences. They're all roads lead to Rome, and the amazing thing is that these different methods all kind of converge on a common kind of understanding, that acquisition of information. For example, a remote viewing, people do a certain kind of meditation and then they can see what's going on in a remote place in Pitcairn Island or Easter Island or something and you see what's going on and give a report that can be checked out by somebody going there and checking it out. I mean, this is amazing is called paranormal telepathy precognitive dreams and and so on i see all of this as a, a spectrum about models of consciousness which have been explored by the ancients by yogis by shamans and so on over the thousands of years explore these methods of getting, uh, we could just call it intuition, getting knowledge of remote places and remote times, knowledge which is useful, knowledge which may be essential for evolution for evolution in the sense of Darwin, for the survival of the fittest, the fittest being the most knowledgeable, the fittest being the best intuition, the most open mind, the most open heart. The shaman, like Terence McKenna, for example, travels out, receives the information, and brings it back. It's not everybody in the tribe that has to do this. It's very costly, it's expensive, it's difficult. It's difficult for your health, for your family, for your life. It's a sacrifice for the community to do these very radical trips. Being locked in a cave in the Himalaya for six months, getting a bowl of soup under the door once a day. I mean, who would want to do this? You have to be tremendously altruistic or maybe insane to volunteer for such service. It's like policemen are shot every day, firemen are burned every day, and yet people want to do these altruistic jobs. And the shaman, the healer, is one of the most radical and sacrificial altruistic jobs possible. I feel like that really, that brings up a lot of questions in my
0: mind. And one of them is when you're talking about all roads, leading to Rome and mentioning spiritual practices across cultural, uh, different cultures, it it makes me think of when Dee is talking about angels, a question that comes up a lot is the cultural specificness of that form, the Christian nature of it. And I'm curious what in that experience or other experiences, if you had a sense of, is this a specifically you know, Judeo-Christian experience and practice when, when D was talking about angels, was that because he was literally talking to angels or was that just the language that he happened to have for what might be a cross-cultural experience?
1: Yes, exactly. Your question is the answer. We have an experience, let us say, in a spiritual realm. It's off the planet. It's like science fiction, space travel or something. And and then we come down from this experience, and then we're back home, and the sun comes up, and our friends and family want to know what happened. Now we try to explain in words a totally nonverbal experience. We try to make a drawing of something which is not even visible. And the effort of doing that requires a kind of a poetic skill. And somebody with the poetic skill will be able to evoke an image, a drawing, or a description in words of a nonverbal experience, which, uh, which successfully communicates the transcendental idea into the mind of the person who's listening to this speech. I mean, poetry succeeds in invoking an image, even though the image is totally nonverbal, that the words, when properly chosen, you see, it's the Bardic tradition. So, When, about angels, or people have a DMT trip, and then they say they've seen robot spiders traveling on a spider web, or or elves, or the little people or something. I think that this poetic license brings in an image which is not faithful to the experience that it's trying to represent. So I've seen the 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 paintings uh, of Fra Angelico. You see the the angel. There's the angel Gabriel, angel Gabriel, and he's got these big wings. And so I thought, did Fra Angelico spend most of his life in a monastery in meditation? And in these meditations, he had this kind of experience I'm talking about. And then he had the poetic, his poetic skill was as a painter. He could paint fantastically well, and he would try to represent his experience in an image so that when somebody is looking at his painting, they can kind of maybe intuitively grasp what the original experience was. I don't think that he saw a humanoid with wings. I think that he received a communication that seemed like it's coming from one of the entities that in his tradition is called Gabriel, and uh, the painting shows Gabriel is telling the Virgin Mary that she's going to have a child, and in the painting, he carries this message, goes from Gabriel's mouth to Mary's womb in a kind of array on which the words that Gabriel said are, are spelled out, you see? So... I think that John Dee brought up in the Christian tradition where there was a long tradition and literature, angelology, uh, trying in a community way, in a consensual way, the consensus of that particular cultural line was to represent the entities of spiritual experience as angels. In India, you have these gods and goddesses, and they're uh, humanoid, uh, they don't have wings. It's a kind of completely different representation of what I imagine is the very same spiritual experience. So, if this is, it's like a placebo effect in medicine. That the power of suggestion is so strong that the suggestion can produce an ex- an interpretation of experience. So the suggestion of angelology is that there are the the seven hierarchies of angels and the archangels and these archons and and fallen angels, devils, and 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 all this can be mapped from one culture to another with a sufficiently rich translational apparatus you see so we can this is just a suggestion for research in the history of consciousness let us say that we take the representation of spiritual experience in uh, different cultural traditions i'm talking about mystical literature and including paintings prose, music, and so on. We try to reverse engineer the translation into languages and different traditions, cultural traditions, try to go backwards up to the original experience. And I believe that these roads all point to Rome, that there is a universal spiritual experience, which is described differently in different traditions. And when people are brought up in these traditions, then there will be the tendency to identify the spiritual experience with the traditional expression of it in their culture. And
0: and yet, it, I'm curious, you know, in that light, which seems so eminently sane and approachable, we then have to think about, well, but back in the real world, people have been killing each other, forming tribal groups and killing each other over, you know, minute, different, perhaps interpretations of the spiritual experience or different
1: gods and religions and forms and that type of thing. Yeah, Terence McKenna was particularly adept at describing the benefit of the psychedelic experience as busting out of these belief systems where someone is born into a certain tradition and takes it all too literally, as in the fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible. And this leads to these wars, to say, what I believe and what you believe they're inconsistent, so one of us must be right. And I don't know. For me, the psychedelic experience separated me from my own culture that I had been brought up in, and never, I wasn't brought up in any religion, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that I believed. And the psychedelic experience gave me a fresh look at that. Like when I traveled to India, I saw American culture completely differently because it it was then a different culture. So it relativized all what had previously been absolute for me. The psychedelic trip and the trip to India had very similar effect in busting out of the traces of, of belief system, of faith busting faith and replacing with more an appreciation of nature and the ambient universe as it actually is at this time and the re- nearby times in recent past and future. Wow. I'm curious what your, what your
0: process through the psychedelic experience was like. Particularly, I know that you've written a lot about the influence of DMT on you and you've mentioned it a few times in the interview I'm curious how you got interested in DMT and maybe what some of your experiences were like with it I mean a hundred times is a lot of times to do DMT I've I can count the number of people I know that have done DMT that much on one hand and it's not the whole hand
1: so what what was that like for you and and well I was fortunate first i I had the preparation. Of my LSD trips, which are pretty radical. I don't recommend it to anyone. It's dangerous. What do you mean by that? It's psychologically too much of a stretch to have everything relativized and your very perception of reality somehow expanded, expanded consciousness, as they say. That could be difficult. I think that my mathematical work and my interest in music in childhood, that these kind of prepared me so that I had very pleasant and informative LSD experiences, and therefore I repeated them because I felt I'd learned something and I wanted to learn more. So with each trip, I would go back to where I left off the last time and do further exploration. That was my fantasy about what I was doing. So then when a friend gave me a sizable quantity of very trustworthy and high quality DMT crystal, I just wanted to try it out. And what happened was so amazing. I, I did this in a darkened room at night, sitting on the floor and smoking Crystal in a glass pipe. And after one inhale, I would fall over, and it was like instantly in this other reality. That's there was great no way re- to
0: do it by yourself.
1: I hope you didn't burn yourself in the process. I uh, know I had a friend. Okay. we would we would hold the pipe for each other, taking turns and repeat try to repeat a few times, but it's actually only the first time, which is totally successful. Then the kind of the battery has to be recharged for another experiment, another day. But I had this intensely visual experience, which I felt I could interpret mathematically. It goes on, I don't know if it was 15 or 20 minutes, and then you come to and you can't really remember what happened because it was so different. And there were no metaphors, visual or verbal or musical or anything. So I repeated uh, this experience in the course of uh, several months, and then I thought (laughs) that I was afraid it was might do brain damage or something because it's so radical and I didn't want to overdo it and I also thought I had learned all I can learn. So that experience around 1969, I think it preceded by about five years, my exposure to computer graphics. Hmm. And as I learned to do computer graphics in the course of my career, I also wanted to use computer graphics to compose some kind of abstract animation, which would be my version of Fra Angelico, that aided by computer technology, try to give an intuition, a vague idea of a DMT experience to somebody else. Wow. I'm curious just to bring it back a few a few beats
0: when you're, you, you mentioned that you had the sense of coming to a point where you had learned what you needed to learn, and I think Terrence McKenna said at one point, you know, when you get the message, put down the phone. But with that much DMT, I'm curious what it was... I mean when you, you talked about your first DMT trip about it being you know there were no metaphors it was hard to process but when you had had that much experience with it and that's so much more experience than I mean very few people even do DMT but that's much more than most people have so I would be really curious to know and I'm sure the listeners would be too what it what it was like by the time you had done that much and and what was it what was the point what was the turning point that led you to decide that you'd learned what you had to learn? Was there a conclusion that you came to, or what happened?
1: Well, on the first DMT experience, it was just this wonderful thing happened, and in the next experience, I wanted to know, would that happen again, or it would never happen again? And and after a couple of experiences, I, I noticed that I, could return to a vision and then I could notice something that I hadn't noticed before. Like there would be a kind of a synchrony, resonance, or harmony between the higher dimensional motions in different areas of the field. And I would imagine these as presenting a sort of intelligence. It was almost like one entity, but it was not connected in In the space of this field. So that would be kind of a a new discovery. I know that that phenomenon was probably happening before, but I hadn't noticed it. So, what else hadn't I noticed? And I pursued these experiences until I didn't really notice anything new anymore. And that's what I thought I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm spending my health and I'm not gaining intellectually uh, sufficient bang for the buck so I I would just stop so I know
0: that, of course, you know, famously Terence McKenna used the metaphor of self-transforming machine elves, which never matched up with anything I saw in the DMT experience. But one thing I, I do have to ask, which I think is a question that everybody comes back from with DMT or perhaps goes into the DMT tr- experience trying to answer for themselves, is the entities or beings that are perceived in that space, do you think they are psychologically or chemically generated by the brain at some way and and or i'll say do you think that those are actual external entities or external dimensions that are being visited or is it just the brain doing stuff
1: well from all that i've said about the mystical literature and the convergence of of messages from higher consciousness over the millennia and so on. Obviously, I believe there's a universal validity to the experience. I, I don't believe in elves. I used to sometimes trip with Terence, and he would come back with this description of his experience involving these multidimensional elves, and I thought that that was just a description of a common experience, a shared experience, which was just a different style of representation, a different strategy of communication. So I imagine that my experience was the same as his experience, and my description of it was radically different from his description of it. But there is no way to prove this isn't even a faith. It's just like an idea. It might be like this. And the mystical literature of the ages Including all the writings of John Dee, that more or less suggest this to me, especially, but his mathematical work, you see, was so. To me, it his mathematical work represented experience, direct perception of a math- mathematical universe as described by Plato, that the. I mean, some people think mathematics is a cultural creation. That people have created this mathematics and out of that people created this other mathematics and so on. And to me, it feels more like discovering another reality where there's the, these things exist, like the five platonic solids exist in some kind of mathematical universe where they're, they're the furniture on the deck of the boat. And we are discovering by going there, like archaeology. We dig deeper and then we dig deeper. And then we report our discoveries with the photographs and drawings and whatever. And then another generation of archaeologists will come along and they will dig deeper. And so, more and more of the always existing, this is the Platonic or Pythagorean version of reality that there is. A universe in the sky of mathematical objects and ordinary reality is built by sort of shining a bright light through a blueprint in the sky in the Plato's mathematical universe. And the bright light shines through the blueprint and gives a form in the material universe around which material, matter, can condense, as it were, and create objects that are out of stone, that are pyramids similar to a tetrahedron. You see, so it's all a kind of religion of some kind of Platonic or Pythagorean version of religion in which it believed that things down here make sense because there's something making sense up there. And a lot of these fantasies of reality have something big at the top, like Plato had something called the good. Plotinus called it the one. And in India, maybe it's called Brahman, or I don't know, Shiva or something. You see? So, I, I, I don't think there's necessarily some sort of universal intelligence at the top, but there appear to be a closet full of mathematical models, which we are discovering, especially since Kepler and Galileo and Tycho Brahe and so on. We are uh, discovering more and more of these mathematical tools that can be used to model nature amazingly well because it almost seems as if nature is built upon these structures from the sky, like chaotic dynamical systems, catastrophic bifurcations, and and so on. The mathematics is useful because somehow different levels of reality are all hanging together in an amazing way and that's the only evidence i have for the platonic idea
0: that's such a fascinating way and and direct way to put it i hadn't fully thought about it in that way but it makes perfect sense in the sense of not only not just observationally seeing mathematical constants expressed throughout nature everywhere but you know for instance when we're talking about psychedelics you know in lsd experience or other psychedelics dmt you see you know, like you're saying, things that look like computer graphics, things that look like very, very precise geometrical patterns and shapes. I, I mean, even if you push your eyes, your, your fingers on your eyes for too long, you'll see geometrical patterns. And it's amazing to me when you're, when you're talking about that, it, you know, as Plato might suggest that we're uncovering a deeper world or a deeper architecture that's literally there. And certainly I could relate that to D. Dee's ideas of, for instance, his his introduction to Euclid's Elements, where he says that mathematics is the way to study God. You know, it's like, if you want to understand God and what reality is, mathematics is the only language or or one of the best language that we have. And and it's amazing to me that that idea has been lost. And for instance, kids learning mathematics in, in, even when I was learning math in high school, I, most kids become very bored with it because they don't see the practical application. But when it's reframed in the sense of like, no, this is the language that you use to understand reality. Well, then suddenly it becomes the most fascinating thing in the world, which is what happened to me when I was write, writing this book about John D. I saw all of this in a totally new light. And all of a sudden math was like the most fascinating <laughs> thing for me, you know, an English major. So, Wow, that's amazing.
1: I'm so happy to hear that. Yes. I don't even want to get into this subject, but mathematics has been ruined in schools. The educational system, you know people have been have have had their natural mathematical intuition or or capability or mathematical function destroyed in schools so they don't even believe what they already know. Uh, and And that's a, such a shame. You see, D. See, the preface was written in uh, January 1572, that is approximately a generation before Galileo wrote his version of this, where he said, God has communicated to us, has written a book, and this book is nature. And if you want to be able to read God's book, then you have to learn mathematics. And by that, he says, by mathematics, I mean the study of lines, circles and and spheres, things like this. So Galileo did not know about fractal geometry, which was discovered in 1975. As soon as fractal geometry was not only discovered, but maybe made visible to the entire world through marvelous computer graphic pictures, then people saw fractals wherever they looked. Clouds are fractals, waves are fractals, the detritus on the forest floors, all fractals. See them everywhere. So Galileo didn't know that. Now, since we know that, we see them everywhere. So we are discovering the mathematical archetypes bit by bit over the long course of time. And many things are yet to be discovered and many aspects of nature are yet to be seen or grokked because the mathematical equipment has not come forward. And even if it came forward, somebody discovered like crystalline structures. If it's not taught in school, if the ability to think in this way and to understand and make the correlation, the resonance of metaphoric relationship between the mathematical objects and its representations in nature then the, the knowledge is essentially wasted so in 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 the mathematical preface D has created this chart at the end of the preface called the ground plot. And the ground plat is a mathematics, not as it was known as his time, but he has imagined it. And what happens to him is all this imagining has turned out to be true. The, the applied mathematics in every field that he could think of in sociology, economics, psychotherapy, and, 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 and so on. He laid out this structure for the gradual application of mathematical archetypes into the understanding of every aspect of human experience. Well one thing I I, I want to interject, particularly for the listener who who might
0: be uh, whose whose ears might be perking up, particularly thinking about mathematics from this light as a as a spiritual quest and as a, a way to understand reality. I had a really incredible experience when I was working on the book where I don't know if you know about the website Khan Academy.
1: Yes, yes, so yes. I, I got do.
0: very, very into Khan Academy. I mean, particularly for for people who may not be in school anymore, or you know, have long since left their days of studying math behind them. I got really into Khan Academy, and I started math over from the beginning. And you, you can, of course, learn all the way up to multivariable calculus from arithmetic all the way up to multivariable calculus. Uh, or differential calculus on Khan Academy along with other subjects. But I must have sat there. I got, it. it, they make it like a video game and it's free also. I became transfixed by it. I must have sat there for two weeks. I was driving my girlfriend crazy because we're just going through it over and over. And it was like all I was doing all day was math. And it became like a psychedelic experience. And it was also reassuring in a way because I would sit there for eight hours doing math. And then I would, because I wanted to understand Dee's way of seeing the world better. But then I would go outside And it was like exactly what he talks about in his writings, like in that preface and various other writings where I would go outside and all of a sudden it's like I would see the. The geometric patterns and the constants in stop signs and, and things in nature and the clouds, like you say. And it was, it was this very reassuring and structuring thing to see where there actually are rules and structure to the universe. And it's not just culturally constructed or, or, or whatever, you know.
1: Yes, pretty soon. I, I need to go, Jason. Okay. I very much enjoyed talking to you, and I, I think we could do it again. It's I'd love to. That was I, phenomenal, I, phenomenal I, I, I didn't know it would be uh, so interesting and productive, actually, these experiences you've had that so fit my way of thinking about things. I just want to leave you with one idea, though, that Dee, yeah, he wrote the preface to the first English translation of Euclid's elements, and of course I've been involved in teaching Euclid elements in various different ways with computer graphics and so on. I just think it's very important and I I believe that the idea of Euclid was not to prove a bunch of theorems, but to communicate a bunch of constructions. How to construct a cube, for example. And all the theorems in Euclid's Elements are for convincing you that when you construct a cube in this way, it's really a cube. That all the sides are equal, the faces are actually square, and so on. So in the English translation, I think not only Dee wrote the preface, but I think that somehow he had a huge influence on Billingsley in doing the translation. Because it's not just a translation of the Greek into English. There's the translation of the figures from two dimensions into three. In the in in the book, if you could get your hands on an actual copy of Billingsley, as I have done, and I have a, a scanned all its pages actually on on my one of my websites. But if you you, if you see, you open up the page, there are actually fold-ups that do the constructions in three dimensions, and that is unique. There never has been a book of Euclid like that before, and not since. It's the best, I think that D has created the best version, the best edition of Euclid's elements that there ever has been. So, if you can get your hands on it, you would love it because, see, it's a step beyond Khan Academy.
0: <laughs> I will have to take a look. They had some of that on display at the recent D exhibit at the Royal Academy of Physicians in London a couple of years ago, which I visited as as book research, but not the, just a few pages were I see. folded up and on display.
1: I see. Oh, that's great. Things. Okay, well, so you've seen it. Yes, I was in the British Museum just a couple of weeks back. And saw the D exhibit, which now is very small. But we saw a really nice uh, scrying stone.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, Doctor Abraham, that was a phenomenal talk. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. And where can people find out more about your work? By the way,
1: my website is a good start. Just put Ralph Abraham in your browser, and you come to. It's called Ralph-Abraham.org my personal website that all my writings some 150 articles and pointers to my books and amazon.com author page and all that kind of stuff is there among the articles of my various different confessions or memoirs of my psychedelic experiences and their influence on my mathematical work such as we have discussed they can be found there and there are there are also some number of lectures on youtube where you can search for my name also okay well thank you so much for for being on the show and hopefully we'll thank do it thank you sometime. jason and i have to really congratulate you on your book it's really important thank you i, re- I really appreciate that
0: and thank you for for doing the quote for it also okay bye oh, bye All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M A G I C K dot M E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.